0: The island of Newfoundland keeps its secrets close, shrouds them in mystery. But once in a while, the fog is lifted. The truth comes out.
1: I get a feeling there's something going on here. My whole body was shaken. You
0: go to bed believing that you're a certain person one night, and then all of a sudden the next day, everything that you've known is not true. This is not the life that I should have lived. I'm Luke Quinton, From CBC, this is Come By Chance. Available now.
1: You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. It's already false enough to be a joke. But even if it weren't, surely the past couple of weeks have put to bed the idea that Canada does not have the sort of random violent attacks that leave innocent people dead in America. It can and does happen here. That much is increasingly, blindingly obvious. Toronto police officer was shot and killed as part of a shooting rampage that took over the greater Toronto area yesterday afternoon.
0: On a Monday afternoon, a series of tragic events unfolding in the GTHA at the hands of what police say was an active shooter.
1: It was one week ago, Monday afternoon, the police reported, via Twitter, that an officer had been shot in Mississauga, just outside of Toronto. More tweets and communications from different police agencies in different areas around southern Ontario followed, eventually culminating in an Ontario-wide emergency alert. In the wake of this attack, that has now left three people, plus the gunman, dead, there are, of course, questions to answer. But because that gunman is dead, we once again have to wonder how many of those answers we'll ever get, or if we get them, how many police will eventually share. Why did he do it? How could this have been stopped before it started? How well did several police agencies coordinate in real time as the shooter traveled between three cities? And could they have done it better, have caught him? sooner. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Wendy Gillis is a crime and police reporter at the Toronto Star. She and a team of journalists have spent the last week trying to get those answers. Hi, Wendy.
0: Hello, thanks for having me.
1: No problem. I'm hoping that you can... First, just bring us back to September 12th. We can do a a detailed run-through because the actual timeline of this event is pretty crazy. But maybe just for those outside of Toronto or Ontario, what happened that day?
0: In summation, we had a really horrible thing happen on Monday, which is we had a multi-city shooting that was quite chaotic. We had a fatal shooting of a police officer in a Tim Hortons in Mississauga, then had a Violent carjacking, then had another shooting in Milton that uh, left two people dead, and then we had the last shooting, which was in Hamilton, and that was of the gunman. And you know, police say this is this is all by the same person. So this is a, this is one man acting alone, armed with a handgun, who created a lot of tragedy and a lot of chaos on Monday that I think has left many people shocked and, you know, so many people sort of reeling from this tragedy.
1: For those unfamiliar with the area, just geographically speaking, how far does this stretch?
0: Yeah, pretty far. I mean, so Mississauga is outside of Toronto, as, as most people know. This started in Mississauga. It then went to Milton, so that's even further west, and then ultimately it ended in Hamilton a whole other whole other city even further west than that so it, it's pretty far all things considered and just to give you a sense you know of how how many police services this involves like ultimately there are five services involved because it happened in Peel region and then it moved over to Halton region and then subsequently it ended in Hamilton and then of course the gunmen traveled on the highways and that's patrolled by the OPP so there's just a lot that's going on um, and it gives you a sense of how how, how big this thing was.
1: One thing I'll ask you about in a little bit after we walk through it is just how that many police agencies can coordinate in real time. But first, maybe tell us a little bit about the man police believe to have been behind all this. Uh, what do we know about Sean Petrie?
0: Yeah, good question. It, it sort of just... To sum it up, we know a fair amount about his criminal history, and then we don't know a whole lot else. So we know that he's 40 years old. As far as we know, he was acting alone um, on Monday. Police don't know where he was living at the time. They think that he was living outside of his car. And we know that he doesn't have, he hasn't been in touch very much with with family. He's estranged from his family, we've heard. What we do know is that he had quite an extensive criminal record. Um, It goes back about 20 years, and it's... um, a long list of convictions you know it's Assault, uh, armed robbery, carrying concealed weapon, weapon, um, careless storage of a firearm. So there are, you know, we know that there's a history in, involving guns. You know, wh- what struck me a little bit is that his last conviction was in 2012. And so that's, you know, that's 10 years where we don't have a good sense of exactly what he, what he was up to. So still, this is a little bit of a mystery in terms of who he was and, and what he was trying to accomplish.
1: Can you also tell us a little bit about the victims? Who were they? And I understand they were from many different walks of life.
0: Yeah, you know, so so first of all, we know we knew a lot about his first victim because quite rapidly news had spread that a police officer had been shot and killed. And I know, you know, I first started getting wind of it in under an hour after it had happened and for me it was really quite shocking because you know, these things don't happen thankfully. You know, um, obviously it did and we need to take stock of that, but it's quite alarming to have, you know, an officer that was killed. On the job. So what we know is that Constable Andrew Hong was shot inside of a Tim Hortons in Mississauga. He was shot at close range, and you know, within a couple of hours of that happening, we had police describing it as an ambush. You know, that he didn't really have any chance. Um, so we know that he was a husband. He had two teenagers. Um, he had spent the bulk of his time with the Toronto Police. In the traffic unit, which was interesting for me, you know, I often sort of hear about officers moving around a lot. He had dedicated his time, most part, to um, the traffic unit, and there he'd kind of specialized in what they call motorcycle operations. And so that's kind of, you know, taking part in a motorcade or processions or political visits. And as it happened on the day he was killed, he had been. In fact, instructing a course on, on how to do that. I, I wasn't quite able to pin down exactly how tall he was, but people kept telling me he was like 6'4", 6'5", big guy, gentle giant kind of, and a jokester. You know, his family put out a statements calling him a, a bit of a practical joker. We also had a man named Shaquille Ashraf who was killed. He was uh, similarly... You know, a father, he was 38 years old. He was a business owner, and he owned the auto body shop that was shot up. It was the second location of the shooting that had happened in Milton. Um, I'm sure we'll get to this, but there is a connection, allegedly, between the gunman and that auto body shop. We're told that he had been an employee there, and when he arrived, the, the gunman arrived He shot and killed Shaquille Ashraf. He also shot and injured two other men. And I'm sad to report that one of those men who had been injured uh, sadly passed away just over the weekend. And that was a man named uh, Sadwinder Singh, an international student from India. And by all accounts, seemed like a wonderful person who was trying to start a life in Canada, bring his family over and he'd, he'd been working at the auto body shop just part-time to, I think, uh, cover the bills. And um, he was seriously injured on Monday and, as I said, died over the weekend. So just horrible. As a journalist, you know, it's never easy to cover these kinds of stories because... You get those small details of who these people were, and it's just heartbreaking to think that this is how they came to their end. I'm
1: going to ask you now to take us through what happened. I understand that you and a, a huge team of your colleagues at the Star put together a painstakingly detailed timeline of what happened uh, during this spree. So you mentioned uh, this began with Andrew Hong at a uh, Tim Hortons. What happened there? Like, What do we know about what actually happened inside the shop?
0: Yeah, good question. I mean, what was striking to me, I think, in terms of what we have started to learn kind of in the aftermath of this is that we now know that the gunman allegedly had been outside of the Tim Hortons for upwards of two hours, two hours and 15 minutes. So he arrived around noon and the shooting was at 2.15. And So we know that there was motorcycle operations course that was taking place nearby. It was a police-led thing, Peel Police, Toronto Police, York Regional Police, and um, Constable Hong had been uh, instructing the course. And, you know, one of the sad details that will stick with me is that apparently he'd offered to buy some of his colleagues' coffee so they break for lunch in that area you know we have these types of areas they're sort of ubiquitous all across Canada now where it's sort of like a plaza of stores and restaurants and there's a Tim Hortons there and everybody went their own separate ways Constable Hong went inside the Tim Hortons and it was there that he was approached by the gunman and shot at close range and so we know that There were the people that were inside the Tim Hortons, you know, understandably left. Uh, You can imagine the horrifying scene that that was. And we know that the police officers that had been nearby already for the course ran towards the Tim Hortons and found Constable Hong deceased at the scene. And so that started a whole response there centered at that Tim Hortons. Meanwhile, we know that the gunman crossed the street, went across to the Walmart parking lot where he stole a, a black SUV, and he shot the driver of that SUV. That person is still, as we understand, alive and recovering. Um, underwent surgery, was shot in the abdomen, um, and, their, and their car was stolen. So subsequent to that, Petrie, the gunman, drives from uh, Mississauga to Milton to MK Auto Repairs. And as I mentioned before, we have been told that that is a place that he worked somewhat recently you know we're hearing sometime in the spring thereabouts um, he had been fired for unprofessional behavior we know that the police are looking into this and the connection there and whether or not there had been any threats or any sort of warnings about whether this this could have been avoided in some way but we know that he gets there and that you know we're told there's actually a little bit of time that you know he's there and there's a few moments that go by and that um, that's when Shaquille Ashraf returns and you know we were told he'd been out sort of getting lunch comes back and Petrie opens fire there and shoots three people so that's Shaquille Ashraf and Sadwinder Singh who has now since died and then a third person who was injured there and then of course we then know that Petrie leaves and drives uh, towards Hamilton, and ultimately, this is where the story ends in, uh, you know, a Hamilton cemetery. Actually, where police are able to track him down and are um, in a shootout. Basically, we know from the Special Investigations Unit, which is the civilian police watchdog, that's now investigating his death that he was involved in an exchange of gunfire in the cemetery and ultimately he was fatally shot. You know, this is maybe surprising to some people, but it is protocol after police shoot someone, they rush over to them, put handcuffs on still, and then start trying to, to give life saving measures so we know that they um, started CPR but he did he did die at the scene there. So and this is this is all taking place over the course of about two hours. So start it all starts at about two fifteen. And then we know that by about four thirty he has been shot dead. But still, you know, for hours after the fact it was just a chaotic attempt to try to figure out kind of what had happened and put the pieces together of this really complicated story. The island of Newfoundland keeps its secrets close, shrouds them in mystery. But once in a while, the fog is lifted, the truth comes out.
1: I get a feeling there's something going on here. My whole body was
0: shaken. You go to bed believing that you're a certain person one night, and then all of a sudden the next day, everything that you've known is not true. This is not the life that I should have lived. I'm Luke Quinton from CBC. This is Come By Chance, available now.
1: I want to ask you about police communication with the public during this. And, you know, my experience is possibly anecdotal, but I know that... As the story was unfolding on that afternoon, you know, I had seen a tweet announcing from the police service announcing that an officer was down. I, I didn't kind of have a really good idea of what was going on. I It seemed like that might be an isolated incident. And then later, I got an emergency alert on my phone. And I know there was some criticism around that alert as well. Have you guys been able to put together, you know, exactly which police service was conveying what to the public?
0: Yeah, I mean, we went back and looked at the tweets that were coming out and tried to figure out, you know, what was known when. It's like I said at the top, you know, this involves multiple different police services and because it's all happening so quickly you can understand there was a little bit of a of a challenge in terms of seeing these two incidents as connected initially. What we do know is that you know first it's Peel responding to this Mississauga shooting and we know that they fairly rapidly put out a tweet talking about how there is someone who is armed and dangerous and driving a dark colored vehicle. There's you know, there's initially some confusion about even the description of the, the gunman. Initially, he's described, I believe, as white, um, and then it gets changed over to male black. And then there's sort of, after the second shooting, it's then Halton police, and they're putting out tweets stating the public with a little bit more information. You know, suspect fled the area, black Jeep Cherokee, all caps, armed and dangerous, do not approach. I'm seeing this in real time too, had just gotten some initial information that a police officer had been shot and people were making the connection because of the jeep's license plate number Um, and we see that it's the same and so I remember thinking oh my gosh this is a situation that's still unfolding you know like this is this is serious this is happening as we speak kind of and then I know that at some point Peel police put out a more detailed description male black thin build saying that he's wearing uh, all black except for a yellow construction vest and they put out a, a security image of him that we know actually was taken from that Tim Hortons, just because it had just happened in Mississauga, and then of course there's the emergency alert that you got, Jordan, and that I did too. I didn't realize till after the fact that I'd also gotten it. It first went across Ontario, and it's warning that there is an active shooter, armed and dangerous. and And you did allude to the fact that there was there was definitely some questions raised and some criticism about that alert that went out. And of course, we're having these much bigger conversations about how we use this tool, whether it's for Amber Alerts for Missing Children, or of course, in Nova Scotia, you know, the lack of public warning for what was unfolding there in 2020. And, you know, I can see both sides of this, like there, the criticism of this was that there was pretty limited information, there wasn't a whole lot about, you know, the model of car, the license plate wasn't included, there wasn't a description of the suspect. And so, so I think, the criticism has been, okay, what was actionable about that? I think on the other side, it was sort of like time was of the essence and it was imperative that something get out. And I think a lot of us would say like some information is probably better than no information and at least got people kind of on their on their guard to be like, okay, something's going on. I'm going to go try to go find out more. But in the meantime, I'm going to lock my door or something like that. You know, I think I think um, this, is, this should be a bit part of a broader conversation about how we u- use these types of alerts. But certainly at 425, when that alert went out, there wasn't a lot that was known yet. Yeah. So you can kind of get a sense of the chaos that was unfolding internally as well as kind of across... Across this region, where there had been just you know three separate things that had gone on that actually were connected.
1: Yeah, totally. And I mean, look, uh, we've covered the Porta Peak inquiry on this show, and you know just how badly things went there. So always inclined to be skeptical of the police, but at the same time, hindsight is twenty twenty. Um, in a situation like this, where things are happening over over a very short span of time, what I want to ask you, and maybe it's too early for this though. Is there a policy or even just, you know, a regular protocol for something like this that does span, as you pointed out, like five separate jurisdictions? Like who takes point on when we send an emergency alert or does each... Does each department kind of make up their own mind with that? And who's the who's the lead communicator on Twitter? Because I think what people were reacting to was the fact that like some of the tweets out there had the suspect's picture and the license plate and then the emergency alert followed those tweets without it.
0: No, that's that's a good question. I think this is yet another kind of example of like, okay, so we have a case study now of what happened here that we obviously need to take, because you're right, Jordan. I mean, there some of that information had already been Released by one police service, and then to not see it in the in the larger alert was sort of surprising. I know that the OPP manages the act the alerts that go out for the province of Ontario, and certainly I'd like to know if they um, are doing a little bit of a review of this to see like okay, so how. How next time can we use information, some of the information that's already out there? Because Twitter really has taken the place of, all right, so this is one of the first places that police services will now go to communicate information because it gets it out so rapidly in part because the media is, you know, I know I, ha- I subscribe to all kinds of tweets when when the police service puts something out, like I get it on my phone right away and I will then retweet it or disseminate it. So it's a, it's a huge, hugely useful tool. And also we need to be making sure that, that there's some coordination for these types of incidents that, as we've seen, can very quickly span multiple different jurisdictions.
1: Thank you for walking us through um, everything we know about what happened so far. I want to ask... If we know anything about why, and I know this is always a difficult question, but but two why's maybe. The first is, why did this begin with an attack on a police officer? And the second, you did mention that, that he had worked at MK Auto Repairs. Do we know anything about how that ended that would provide a motive for why he would come back and attack people at that place?
0: I mean, good questions. We're now, we're now at the weak point where, you know, it's almost been a week since this happened and we know a lot and there's still so much that we don't know. There's definitely, you know, so within, within I'd say a day or two of this shooting, I started hearing from some of the, you know, police officials I was speaking with that this may have been a targeted um, attack on a police officer. And sure enough, by you know, by Thursday, we did have several chiefs of police saying, you know, the working theory right now, or at least they, they what, from what they, from what they take from the evidence so far, there does seem to be an indication that Sean Petrie had been waiting for someone in uniform. He'd been waiting for a police officer, and you know what, what I think we can take. From the two hour and 15 minutes that we know that he was there, that potentially he was waiting out for a police officer to walk in the door. We don't know if he... You know, there were there were many questions that had been asked at the press conference last week about whether he had targeted Constable Hong specifically. And and I think what we know as of now is that the police believe he was waiting for a police officer. Why? You know, we don't know that yet. We do know that after he shot Constable Hong, he made an attempt to disarm him. He tried to take his gun from him and wasn't able to get past some of the mechanisms that make it hard for someone to, to just take an officer's gun. So there is conjecture certainly that perhaps he had been trying to get a second gun you know that may have been part of the motivation for for you know looking for a police officer to get to your second question i don't know that we have enough information at this point to draw a lot of connections between just the, the fact that he had worked there and he went back there certainly it would suggest that there was something you know some retribution or some motivation to go back there um Perhaps he'd been upset about something. No, but hopefully some of those answers will come, I don't know, in the next few weeks, um, you know, as, as a little bit more is discovered about his past. But, you know, obviously this is, just, there are just big questions about the why here. And that's always, that's always the case with these things is, you know, it, there's, it seems so senseless. And so we're, we're always yearning and searching for why, why, like, what. How did this happen and how can we stop it from happening again? You know, that's that's just human nature to ask those questions.
1: The last thing I want to ask you is sort of about just what happens now. You kind of alluded to it. It's something that we discussed uh, last week in the wake of uh, another one of these, um, the stabbing spree in Saskatchewan. You know, when a suspect dies at the end of one of these in police custody, I think uh, the worry a lot of people have and have pointed out is that there's not really much of a mechanism for a lot of the deeper details of the investigation to become public because there's not a trial. So I, I just want to know, like, you know, first of all, are you concerned about that? And, and how much do you think you will ever get from the police now that uh, the suspect's dead?
0: Yeah, this, these are really good questions. And I think we need to be talking about them because we can, you know, as as the media, um, be demanding more information about this. Um, so first of all, there are, you know, a couple of of there are going to be bits of information that come out just by virtue of the the processes that are in place now. So the Special Investigations Unit is now probing the shooting death of Sean Petrie. So, so SIU is the civilian police watchdog that in Ontario uh, investigates every time uh, there's a death or a serious injury involving police. And they will put out detailed report on what happened here. And so we will get those... We will get that report. And and in recent years, they really have been providing more transparency around their investigations. And, you know, that that can mean video, that can mean photos, and that usually is like a very detailed narrative of what, what transpired. Now, you know, they're... Her view is only the death of Sean Petrie. So to the extent to which we will find out about shooting in Mississauga and then the shooting in Milton, I think that will be quite limited from the SIU because they will really only be looking at that one death. What I do know is that, unfortunately, we we have had similar situations. I know I know a few years ago like when we were covering the, the Danforth shooting, that was an incident where... You know, the SIU had been involved and the Toronto police ended up putting out a big report on what happened there. And I think it was to kind of step in and say, you know, we know that the public wants to know what happened in this case and deserves some answers. And because the, the person responsible is deceased... Um, we'll never get a trial. So here's what we do know. And they did put out some some information about um, the gunmen there and, you know, a really detailed accounting of what had happened that night and the response. So what I'm sort of hoping is that maybe Peel Police, which is sort of the lead police agency involved in this, they might consider doing something like that to get a little bit more of a you know, a public accounting of what actually happened. That being said, I mean there's there I know that we'll be pushing as a star to keep covering this. You know, we'll wanna be talking to more people. I think a big a big question, Mark, is what, you know, what's been going on with Sean Petrie in the last Ten years, as I alluded to, like that's a little bit of a, a gap in terms of our knowledge. But but certainly, I mean, I I think sometimes the lack of a trial can be a blessing. Like sometimes that means that the people involved can move on a little bit quicker. They don't get dragged through a very lengthy justice uh, process. But of course, it also means that there's no you know, there isn't kind of the, um, the ending that can come with trial where, you know, if there's a guilty finding or someone gets put away in jail for a long time, that can help with closure. So, of course, without that, that's um, that's not going to be possible. But at the same time, I think, you know, hopefully there'll be some mechanism to get some answers and some closure and some, I don't know, I'm not sure what justice looks like here. I guess just finding out a little bit more about why, why it happened.
1: Wendy, thank you for this and thank you for your continued efforts to Answer the why question uh, in the months to come.
0: Thank you very much for having me.
1: That was The Big Story. For more big stories, including stories on random violent attacks that many people would hope don't happen in Canada, you can go to thebigstorypodcast.ca. You can talk to us on Twitter at thebigstoryfpn or via email hello at thebigstorypodcast.ca. And as always, you can find this podcast wherever you get podcasts. You can rate, review, like, subscribe, follow, whatever language your favourite app uses. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow. I'm Laura Palmer, host of Island Crime. Season 6, Sweethearts, is the story of three teenage girls who were all murdered in Victoria, Canada within about 12 months. So she was scared. Something out there scared her. You just created the playground where predators can really thrive. She was a 16-year-old girl. She was a sweetheart. Listen to Sweethearts at FrequencyPodcastNetwork.com or wherever you get podcasts. Find your frequency.